Welcome to The Road We Travel, a production of Drive Smart Virginia. Our subject today, sharing the road. And our guest, Brantley Tyndall with Bike Walk RVA. Our program is primarily interested in infrastructure changes, things like bike lanes, paved trails, and in part, we're talking about ordering our transportation environment. That's next on The Road We Travel. Our guest is Brantley Tyndall. He is the Director of Outreach at Bike Walk RVA. Thanks for joining us, Brantley. Thanks for having me. Tell me about Bike Walk RVA. Let's just start off with that for folks who may not be familiar with what your organization does. Definitely. Um, so Bike Walk RVA is a program of sports backers. We're an active living nonprofit in the Richmond region, and we're we're largely known for our large running events like the Ucrops Monument Avenue 10K and uh, various events around the year. And uh, as our, we're, I guess we're about 30 years old now. And um, in 2012, in our, in order to realize our mission of making Richmond, the, the Richmond region, the most active in the country, we realized that safety played a really big role in whether or not people chose to run or walk or ride bikes. And so we built our Bike Walk RVA program to advocate for safer streets for biking and walking. And we're largely infrastructure focused, like bike lanes and paved trails, sidewalks and crosswalks. But we also um, certainly spend a lot of time talking about safe road education and everyone sharing the road safely and everyone getting to where they need to go. Does Bike Walk RVA work with the city of Richmond? You're you're basically the, the Richmond area or the metro Richmond area? We, we, yeah, we're, um, Bike Walk RVA is a regional program that tends to focus primarily with uh, the city of Richmond, counties of Chesterfield, Henrico, and Hanover, that we've started to spend a little bit more time in Ashland and Petersburg as well. Are you working with the governments of the counties and the city? How does that work? Yeah, we work with, uh, we certainly work with all of the local governments, um, in part because we focus a lot on infrastructure advocacy, meaning we want to see uh, and really, we want to help uh, Richmond region residents advocate for more bike lanes, more paved trails, and other infrastructure projects that, of course, require a lot of governmental uh, oversight and approval of everything from design, funding, and building. And those processes take a long time, and they really don't they really don't happen without a lot of uh, community engagement and community ownership of those projects. So we help to uplift and amplify what we really perceive to be community desires that are already out there. We just help people be more effective and make it to the right meeting and talk to the right person and um, and really to be updated on what the the best infrastructure trends are. And, and ultimately what we want to see is more people choosing to bike and walk to work or for any other reason and to be uh, safer while doing so, uh, both as they relate in, in the same space to drivers, but also, you know, how they bike and walk themselves. I think a lot of people would want a bicycle if they, if they felt they were safe doing it, if, if they felt the infrastructure was fostering their safety. I, yeah, we certainly agree. And, you know, it's, um, it's funny. I, I can probably talk about this one for a minute. Um, it's uh, middle of February right now while we're recording this podcast, and it's one of the, the few snowy days that we get in the Richmond region. And it's like, most people think it's kind of dismal and it's kind of gross out. And, um, we, I think a lot of folks, when we, when we tend to think about why people don't bike, 
it's a, oh man, what about hills? Or, oh man, what about bad weather? What do you do when it's raining? Or what do you do when it's hot out? What do you um, do? Those things are really easy to overcome. There's just, you, you get right clothes for it, or you um, you get a fender for your bike. Those are actually really simple things to solve. The hard thing to solve, and the thing that really is the biggest barrier to people choosing to bike, whether it's you know to work or whether it's just around the neighborhood, because some people really just don't live close enough to where they work, and you can't expect people to ride. 30 miles if that's you know where they have to go the biggest thing to overcome is really the both real and perceived fear of sharing the space with cars because of the major discrepancy in size and speed so if there's an impact with with someone biking and someone driving there's almost always one party that loses and so that perception is felt uh, and it's really something that prevents people from even getting started all road users have the right to use the road. Um, that's why they're called road road users. Pedestrians, <laughs> bicyclists, motorcyclists, uh, automobile drivers, truck drivers, everybody. But we have reciprocal responsibilities also to look out for one another. Dr- motor that's ve- that's certainly know. true. That's certainly true. We all have responsibilities. There's the you know the law allows and that um, uh, bike riders and pedestrians and sometimes tractors and horse-drawn carriages to use the road. And generally, we all follow the same laws and have the same rights and responsibilities. There are some that are specific to individual road users, in part because, you know, it's basically impossible for a bike rider to go 60 miles an hour. And cars don't have to worry about crosswalks, except for when they know to yield to them. But you don't have to worry about cars having mid-block crossings and and different kind of signalizing um, uh, treatments for you know, if a pedestrian is going to cross here or if a bike is going to cross here. So there are there are some subtle differences, um, largely at intersections and, and largely in areas where there are different kinds of road users. But more or less, we all, follow, we all follow the same rules because we don't want to be making decisions not knowing what to do. That's one thing that can lead to crashes is going high speed, on, regardless of what kind of vehicle you're in, going high speed into like an unknown situation. Right. So... Um, more or less the same rules, and we'll we'll all get through that intersection fine. If yeah, if everybody's obeying the same rules, if everybody knows what they're supposed to do and what to expect from the other person, and everybody's doing what they're supposed to do, the system works. It's when someone doesn't do their part or does something unexpected that we have big problems. So the communication Definitely. is very important, and the way that the infrastructure is laid out. What are the what are some of the and let's talk specifically about Richmond. What are some of the changes? All right. Well, let's say in the last eight years, nine years, what what changes in the infrastructure in the city of Richmond have helped make it easier for all road users to share the same landscape? Well, and I I, I alluded to this early on that um, our program is primarily interested in infrastructure changes, things like bike lanes. Uh, paved trails, and in part, it, we're talking about um, ordering our our transportation environment, so people know where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing, where they're in the road. And that's not to say that bike riders aren't allowed to use every road, but if there are places where uh, you know you're going to have a lot of them, or you want to encourage more of them, like in a downtown uh, urbanized area where many trips are very short distance, and it makes a lot of sense for a road user to not have to find parking and to have to take up 200 square feet for storage of their car most of the day that doesn't move. It, there's a lot of reasons why it makes sense to build infrastructure that encourages non-auto travel. 
but in general, the theme uh, in the past eight years is the Richmond region has built a lot of infrastructure for people to bike and and or to bike and walk. Like uh, notably, the completion of the Virginia Capitol Trail and the uh, T. Tyler Potterfield Memorial Bridge that crosses the James River right in the heart of the city um, are for bikes and people walking only. One of the first projects that we undertook early on in our in our program's history was an infrastructure benchmarking report, where we every few years we would we would study how much infrastructure had been dedicated to biking and walking, typically by lane mile as a metric. And between 2013 and 2016, the number of miles tripled from, um, it's been a while since I've looked at that report, but for any, somewhere from the neighborhood of like 30 miles to 90 miles. Um, and we keep an, an updated inventory of that on our website, um, the Bike Walk RVA page of Sportsbackers website at sportsbackers.org. We have an interactive map where you can click on different infrastructure projects and say, okay, wow, I can, I can zoom in on a map on Brook Road and see the new protected bike lane there. And it's, you can see that's three and a half miles. You can get a picture of what it looks like. So in, in general, we've more than tripled the amount of miles of dedicated infrastructure. And we're, we're up to about, I think, uh, sort of a casual estimate of about 100 miles now, which is pretty good. You know, anywhere from one to 10 miles a year, depending on, on the year. And uh, 2015 was a big one for, for building infrastructure in part because of the energy around the world championships that Richmond hosted. But I do want to say it's not just the city of Richmond. It's certainly the, the region has been working on this a lot um, it, uh, insofar as the, the, the region actually agreed last year during the 2020 General Assembly to form a Central Virginia Transportation Authority in part to be able to pay for some of these kinds of projects, like the forthcoming Fall Line Trail, which is a lot like the Virginia Capitol Trail. And for listeners who may not be familiar, the Virginia Capitol Trail is a paved, fairly wide, multi-use trail that's off the road. It's a lot. It's along the road in some sections, but it's it's not a part of the road between Richmond and Jamestown. It's about 52 miles, and it really has become a um, such a successful project for active transportation and recreation and people really love it and now people are like well we want another one <laughs> and so uh, one of the projects that Bikewalk RVA has been working on with our local governments is the Fall Line Trail which would be essentially a north-south oriented uh, complement to the the Capitol Trail which runs east and west and would connect down in the city of Richmond somewhere near the riverfront Everything from, you know, uh, an individual bike lane project to uh, when you start to really look at the, how these projects are getting built out, we're talking about building essentially our own kind of bikeway network that is either along a street or parallel but off of a street um, to a lot of our, our existing roads. Because, funny enough, bike transportation is very similar to car transportation in that people start and finish in the same places and they need to stop at the same stores and... It ends up being, you know, a very multi-year effort, but you can actually build infrastructure that has a dedicated roadway network almost overlaid, if you look at it from an aerial perspective, uh, from the, the roadways that we're, we're used to driving. I think I think I, I think I answered your question. It's primarily about we've had an explosion of infrastructure, and hopefully we have a lot more. The, the trail you were talking, not the um, Capitol Trail. I'm familiar with that one. That's that's beautiful, by the way. The way they've built the bridges and it's just it's a terrific. I, I want to ride it. I don't think I can ride the whole thing. But <laughs> <laughs> just when, take it in chunks. <laughs> yeah, 
I think if I ride from like Richmond towards Williamsburg, that that's mo- mostly downhill. Yeah, it's not Maybe. so much as you might think. It's definitely more rolling. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, the other one is is that trail that comes down from Ashland a part of that? Yep. It's so it's um it's it's an original working title was the Ashland to Petersburg Trail, uh, and the northern section of that was uh, an existing trail concept that's called the Ashland Trolley Line that has been kind of melded into the, the fall line effort. So the, the Ashton to Petersburg trail was picked up by VDOT in 2018. Now, I think it was 2018 where they did um, a long-term trail wide feasibility study and environmental study and became really the foundation for the localities to be able to start building their sections out and would be, 42 or 43 miles as it's sort of currently conceptually aligned um, and connect Ashland through the heart of Richmond down to Petersburg and would touch and really, you know, really transverse um, the counties of of Hanover, Henrico, Chesterfield, and the city of uh, Colonial Heights. Has, um, I'm just going to toss this out there because it seems to affect everything. Has the COVID Shut down, and has that affected um, bicycling? Absolutely, yeah. Most people have have been describing it as the biggest bike boom since the 1970s. Really? Um, bike shops around the country are selling out of bikes. They, I mean, essentially what happened is overnight, people, uh, other than essential workers, people um, immediately were stuck at home forever <laughs> for and for like an, an indefinite amount of time. And people needed to be able to escape. Like they needed to be able to get their regular exercise or they needed to be able to get out of their own, you know, living room, maybe to get a little free time away from their family. And also, like, peace of mind and to be able to enjoy the, uh, the good spring and summer weather that, you know, were, were kind of on the way as the, the lockdowns uh, took effect. And people came out in droves. You know, one of the only things that was available for for basically getting out of your house was, Uh, going for a run or going for a bike ride. And so people got their bikes out of uh, storage and they got them fixed up or they bought a new one. And so bikes sold out around the country pretty quickly. Bike sales around the country, as reported by the industry, were up 120%. And they would have been higher if they'd have had the inventory to sell. So bike shops uh, were deemed essential and uh, in part because their transportation is so necessary. And they've certainly had to adapt to different you know, retail experiences and, and, and customer engagement, but they have, uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm reluctant to say it, but the the way that I want to say it is that it's been, it's been pretty good times for the the bike industry, despite all of the the downsides, obviously to having a pandemic. Well, that's happened to a lot of industries. I mean, that that's just normal, like the, uh, food delivery industry. Yeah. Teleconferencing. It's a good time to be in teleconferencing. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. All that stuff, you know, we've had to adapt and, and do things differently. And I guess the the bike boom is a part of it. So there are more, I guess it's safe to say, more more bicycles on the road, and there will be in the spring. Again, that's that goes back to the infrastructure. And when we've got all these different modes of transportation sharing, and and I'm talking more about like in the city of Richmond, the Colonial Bike Trail or the Colonial Trail is really well designed as far as almost entirely separating vehicles from pedestrians and bicycles. There are a few places I've seen where they cross, but those crossings, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, they have a, a light or something. I seem yeah, to remember. Yeah, the crossings are really well done. And yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're um, 
what are called RRFBs, rectangular rapid uh, or rapid rectangular flashing beacons that are, you know, essentially very high vis crossings for pedestrians and and, and a, a number of other kinds of infrastructure things like that. The one out in um, the easternmost crossing, and and for those who might not um, know the the alignment super well, it more or less parallels Virginia Route Five between uh, Richmond and Jamestown, and um, which is a scenic byway. And it's a it's a great you know you're you're going through historic uh, farmland and um, really it's a really enjoyable experience. Um, but so it crosses the Chickahominy at, at around mile marker seven or eight, and just to the east of that it crosses from the north side of the of route 5 to the south side as it as as you're heading east you're you stay on the south side as you're heading towards Jamestown i'm told that vdot put in like visual like camera sensors like they're not just motion sensors but they're actually cameras that sense changes in light and like i think even from a digital standpoint they they check they they sense changes in individual pixels to be able to sense when bike riders and i think also pedestrians are approaching it so that the flashing lights turn on without having to hit a button, which I think is really savvy and like really would love to see a lot more of those kinds of things. But yeah, big kudos to VDOT and, and the Virginia Capital Trail Foundation and, and the number of partners that work on that project to really focus on the importance of those crossings. Because when you're not crossing, it's not, there's, you know, there are fewer opportunities for collisions uh, or, or conflicts, I might say. But the crossings have all been really well done, I think. I used the Capitol Trail as an example because it really works well. I guess I'm as interested in how the infrastructure works in the city, Richmond specifically, where it becomes much more congested and you have pedestrians and bicyclists and automobiles and trucks and buses all sharing. I'm thinking like Broad Street. What are some of the approaches to keep things from going haywire? Interesting. Um, well, there's a lot of there are a lot of things, and I'll say that uh, to give some context here, nationally over the past decade, it's really it's really this, there there there's been a trend that's been an uptick since about the last time we had a recession, um, you know, 2008 and and the, and the years following, where driving went down a lot. VMT, uh, which is the vehicle miles traveled, is the unit that federal agencies and state agencies use to um, to measure the amount that Americans drive by miles. And so like we're in the something something astronomical like 32 billion VMT a year. And it, but they tracked that. And there was a, 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 sh, a sharp decline in the late 2000s uh, in part because the economy was bad and so people weren't driving to work as much and people couldn't afford gas as much and <laughs> people look for alternatives. And as the economy started to steadily increase or, or rebound, then you know, uh, driving activity went up, VMT went up, and VMT is a good proxy for essentially exposure to roadway danger. The more people are driving, the more exposure there is to crashes. So basically tracking that increase of VMT since the last recession, there's been a steady increase in pedestrian fatalities. There's not quite the same increase in in Bike fatalities, it's uh, it's a smaller number, so it's a little bit harder to, to track specifically. But pedestrians in particular have been tracking up nationally and in Virginia and in the Richmond region since that time. Uh, and on, on an average year, one in six people who's killed in Virginia in traffic is a pedestrian. That number has been growing in 2019, saw an all-time high 
with 126 people killed, and, and 2020 was 123, so almost the same. And interestingly, at a time when um, you know 2020 was such a strange year for transportation, VMT was down a lot. So, and I think probably I haven't seen this, the raw numbers, but I would I, I think there's enough evidence to say that driving activity went down a lot in 2020, and the proportion of pedestrians who were killed to that amount of driving was actually higher. If not, it's it's at least on par, but I think it's very easy to say that it was a little bit higher. Yeah, so the danger to pedestrians and, and, and it, to some degree bicyclists is is definitely increasing. And, uh, and so when you talk about sort of, you know, the urban environment and, you know, what can be done to reduce those fatalities, the, the number one thing that I think is important is actually speeding. Speeding is, uh, there, there's, there are a couple ways to think about this. And I talked, um, with our transportation officials around the Commonwealth a lot about this and serve on, I think actually with you, uh, at, on the pedestrian safety task force at the, at the department of motor vehicles, <laughs> speed is not speeding, but speed is just physical energy. And it speed itself is a factor in every single fatal crash, no matter what, because if you slowed that down, that crash down enough, there would be no fatality. So right. there's some kind of threshold, uh, and in, in every case, you know, and they're all cases are very different, but in every case, if you were able to just take some of the speed away, that fatal crash would have no longer been fatal. And that's just, that's just true. It's just true physics for every single crash. Yeah. The more energy um, you put into the equation, the more, the more likely it, it's going to be to be fatal. Yep. Speed, uh, and, speed's and, energy. and the lower the speed, the more avoidable it is as well. Yeah. And so, but the other way to think about it is speeding, which is exceeding the posted speed limit. Speeding, uh, during the pandemic, the year 2020, um, DMV reported a 12.5% increase in speeding-related fatalities, which is interesting because it correlates, or doesn't correlate, it um, coincides with a 15% reduction in speeding-related crashes. So driving was down, the number of crashes were down, but those crashes got more deadly. And so I wonder, what can we think about? What What do those statistics mean? They they could mean a lot of things, and you know, more data could could shed light on uh, on different ways of thinking about it. But what, something that we know about the year 2020 is that driving was down a little bit. When when driving is down, then congestion is down. When congestion is down, people can speed more. And they actually there have been sort of anecdotal and sort of like um, uh, reports of individual cases of an increase in reckless speeding, where if you get on an interstate and there's no one on the interstate with you, who's to say you can't go 100 miles an hour? I, I don't have really great numbers to say that that was like a, a major problem, but there, that definitely did happen on occasion. But what we did see is around the state, a 12.5% increase in speeding-related fatalities. People are driving faster because there's less stuff in the road to slow them down. And what I'm getting at is, is actually that congestion, while it may lead to some road rage or, or frustration, Congestion is actually a traffic calming measure. You can actually, it's something that actually be tuned to make a street safer by slowing the physical energy in the transportation environment so that if there's a crash, it's less deadly or perhaps the crash could be avoided in the first place. So in general, what I think you see in urban environments is a lot of roadway design and uh, land use planning end up having to take into account some matter of traffic calming, which is essentially just speed reduction, 
but which sounds scary if you're if you're the motoring public, which we hear a lot um, used uh, a phrase we hear used a lot at the General Assembly. If you're a part of the motoring public, you're not exactly jazzed to hear speed reduction, right? But traffic calming sounds nicer. It's about being nice, <laughs> and it's right. about avoiding crashes, saving people's lives, and still getting and still having a traffic environment where everybody can get to where they need to go. Um, there's like a two to three week behavior change perspective shift that that takes place when a street is let's say optimized or improved for being what a lot of people will call a complete street complete street is the concept that a street should be able to serve multiple functions not just getting cars as throughput but people who live on that street walking and biking or people you know that there are destinations on that street for people to be able to walk and bike to or for like in the case of my mom who's in a powered wheelchair does the complete streets or does the street serve her to, for, to be able to get up and off a curb or to be able to cross the street? Are there buttons? You know, can you like sit on a bench on this street or is it, or is it really just designed to be an artery? When you design, a, when you, or let's say you redesign a street that had been optimized for vehicle throughput and you see, you see some of these streets um, where there's no sidewalk, there's no, there, there's a median potentially um, but there, uh, there's um, a parking lane that nobody uses because they're worried about their car getting sideswiped, and it's maybe it's not as wide as a normal car nowadays. Then uh, you see 85th percentile speeds, which is the um, it's a sort of a, a, a traffic term, uh, a metric to say it's the speed at which five out of six cars are going or below. So essentially the majority of cars are going this speed or, or less. If the 85th uh, percent, at the 85th percentile speed on a neighborhood road that's been built like it's supposed to be an artery, Sims Avenue is a great example in Southside Richmond. Um, it's a posted speed limit of 30 miles per hour. There, uh, before they installed the bike lane a couple of years ago, it was two, two relatively narrow lanes and a, and a pretty narrow uh, parking lane and it's median separated for most of it. Most, I mean, if you drive on this road, almost everyone's going 40 or 45 miles an hour on it. And there was a bunch of complaints by residents about it. Uh, and nobody parked on it um, because they were worried about getting their, their car getting rear-ended or sideswiped. Um, and, they, and there was the, the sense of danger about getting out of their car into the travel lane with someone going so quick. And the, the lanes are actually pretty narrow too. So usually narrowing the street, it, it sends us, psychological signal to drivers to slow down and it usually works pretty well but sims it didn't work very well the the speeds on that were just really unsafe for people who live on that street who could literally walk to a store or a coffee shop or a restaurant or antique shop or a park all along that area real dangerous and so what you can do is design uh redesign the street to make it more of a complete street Street, trying to say street twice, like Austin Powers. But <laughs> uh, you can there. I mean, you can put in higher visibility, higher visibility crosswalks. You can shorten the crossing distance between for pedestrians at intersections by building in bulb outs or sidewalk extensions. You can uh, raise a crosswalk so there's actually vertical deflection. You can put posts along the bike lane so that drivers feel a little more constrained width-wise, so that they. Uh, don't feel like they can go as fast and have as much wiggle room. Um, there's, I mean, there are all kinds of things you can do. You can put in roundabouts instead of traffic uh, lights because uh, every user that goes into a roundabout 
has to slow down or you're going to hit something, right? And so every, every driver knows it. And most drivers are a little bit confused, at least in America, about how to use a roundabout. And that confusion actually leads to slower speeds, which, again, are safer. That's the goal is the, the slower speeds. And part of what the bike and pedestrian infrastructure movement has been about has been about getting dedicated space for people biking and walking so that they don't have to share those high-speed environments with cars. But it's not really applicable for every street and every uh, scenario to have a dedicated bike lane or, or trail or sidewalk for for every street. And, and, and frankly, even if it if that was the vision, which is something that you know I personally would be supportive of, infrastructure takes a lot of time and money, and it's just you can't snap your fingers and get there. But there are traffic calming measures that you can do to keep a street almost the same, make a couple of spot treatments here and there, and really bring the design speed down to a safer, more reasonable level for folks to be able to get off of a bus safely or get onto a bus safely or get across the street to a local business. So it's different for every situation, basically. I mean, I'm yeah, thinking, for I, instance... I definitely think that there's a, like, lots of different kinds of roads share a lot in common. So it's not like you have to reinvent the wheel every time, but there are there are a number of tools in the toolbox and you, you pick the best ones based on the the engineered environment in a, in a place and what the problems are in that specific area. I was thinking of, I guess it's Franklin street down near the, uh, the main library in Richmond where they have yep. a parking lane where they use the parking lane to separate bicyclists from the motor vehicle traffic. Yep. We call it a floating two way protected bike lane. And it's really, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a focal point of the bike network in the Richmond region. In what way? Well, it's uh, we'll call it. It's a little bit like the Virginia Capital Trail in that bike riders have a lot of physical separation. It's about as much physical separation as you can get from active drivers um, from as from as a bike rider, except for of course you got to you have to cross streets, yeah. uh, cross streets. But you have a, you have not only painted lines on the pavement, but you have physical um, plastic posts. Some people call them flex posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that painted buffer, and then the parked cars serve as a physical buffer between active motor vehicle traffic and the bike traffic. And it, it, it also has a bit of an efficiency in that it is bike lanes in two directions. It's a two-way bike lane so that you don't have to carve out space and the additional space for the protections in both directions. Instead, you only have to do that once. And I don't think it costs any driving, you know, motor vehicle driving space. I don't, it didn't cost a lane or anything. It's just kind of like. Actually, that was a road diet. Yeah. It, uh, the the original alignment of that road was, uh, and this is actually a really great example. It was this, uh, a lot of the, the one-way streets in downtown Richmond. And this is true of a lot of places in, in the state, frankly, is Franklin and it's, it's sort of two, it's, it's coupled. Uh, Franklin and, and Grace are, two streets that have, and also Maine, are one-way streets that go in opposite directions that are adjacent to each other. So they, they essentially form a pair or a couplet. Franklin and Maine go opposite directions. There are each two lanes, or at least before the bike lane was installed, there were each two lanes and two parking lanes, one on each side. And so in order to put the protected bike lane, two-way protected bike lane, on Franklin Street, they did eliminate a travel lane in that section in order to, to provide the they essentially brought the parking lane in, inward to the center of the street, to use that parking lane space for the two-way protected bike lane 
and then the that we'll call it the kind of middle lane is actually and it, it's actually a floating lane so it, it is um, it's only parking it's parking most of the day but at peak hour it is a travel lane so it, it can meet transportation demand while also allowing residents and local businesses to park as well. Well, I get it. So during peak demand hours, for lack of a better term, that second travel lane really is there. It's still there. It's only yep. becomes parking. It. it only becomes parking when it's not needed. So when it's needed, it's there. And when it's not needed, it's, it's not there. Yep. And the bike lane is always there and it always has the protections, but it at least it it is a compromise for the different various needs at various times for drivers in the area. Talking again about uh, drivers coming from, say, one of the counties and into the city, bike lanes are something that have been around for a long time, but there are more markings now, I've noticed, like the Sharrows that I see down near the main DMV on, I uh, forget what, what road that is. They turn green, and there, there are different messages that the pavement markings are sending to the driver. Who is getting the message across to motor vehicle users about bike lanes and sharrows and those indicators that can help motorists know what they're supposed to do and what to expect from bicyclists? That's a great question. And I think that, that it's a topic that could have, you know, it has some complexities. At the basis is the federal transportation agencies have a, they create uniformity in and, and standards in the way that roads are designed. Because the thought is, any road user from any part of the country should be able to go to any other part of the country and reasonably expect to know how to get around. What the, what you know, we don't have different colors, we don't have different symbols. But of course, that is called the MUTCD, the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. So that uh, traffic light in every part of the country more or less looks and functions the same. Um, of course, you know that that document goes back a long time, and every decade or so, they uh, the agencies update it based on local feedback to say, well, we've got a lot of bike riders here and we, we need to be able to design our streets for bike riders. Uh, and our current um, uniform uh, manual doesn't really give us all the options that we need. Uh, for example, in some places you might go and see um, traffic signals. We know with a red on top and a yellow in the middle and a green on the bottom have a bike symbol in those different lights. So it'd be a red light for a red light bike or a yellow light bike or a green light bike. Those aren't currently allowed um, by the MUTCD, but there are, uh, there's an, an update to that manual that will be ongoing for the next couple of years that could consider doing that. There are, and this is, this is a really big topic and yeah, I know bigger than what we're talking about today, but um, there, uh, there's, they're allowed in some places for like experimental or interim use, but they're not currently allowed here. But in general, things there is always the potential for innovation and uh, to respond to uh, a city or a state's you know ever-changing needs. But sharrows and bike lanes, like you say, um, are not, the the thought of them is not brand new, but they have continued to evolve over, and then I think they've evolved fairly rapidly in the past. 15 or so years, uh, and the theme of that evolution is that they tend to get bigger, more separation, more highlighting colors, and 
And that, so I said more physical separation, I meant to say sort of like distance separation, but then also physical protection, meaning something, uh, some sort of physical barrier. And there's lots of different things. They could be parked cars, which, uh, you know, in, in, in Richmond around Franklin Street being built, it took, a, it took some time to get people to kind of buy into the fact that parked cars could be a useful physical protection to bike riders. But I think, you know, we won that fight. But there, you could use planters. You could use a median. You can use all kinds of stuff. Um, I think that we will continue to see the evolution of those kinds of, of projects, uh, bike lanes and paved trails. And I think if I, if I, I have a hunch that we will start to be building more paved trails like the Virginia Capitol Trail and the forthcoming Fall Line Trail in urban areas, which is there, there are a number of major cities around the country that have those kinds of trails in their downtown urban cores and the Richmond region is kind of following that trend uh, on the, on the coattails of the success of those projects elsewhere. They, you know, it might take, it, it basically means like you're extending a sidewalk and you're putting, uh, or you're, you're extending a curb so that the bike lane is essential, which is not so much a lane some now as, a, as it is a trail, but in an urban environment, it is grade separated and has its own markings and and looks very different and there are a lot of advantages because it means that you can build it to a standard to withstand the weight of bikes instead of the weight of dump trucks hmm. and so there's some cost savings and some other things but um and certainly for like a place making standpoint to have a a place that feels good for people walking and biking and sitting on a park bench but the more or less the the bike lanes and the traffic calming in the city of Richmond and, and, and increasingly elsewhere in the region um, are designed so that there is some intuitive, in, intuitive ability to understand it. Like if you see a bike symbol on a residential street that has bike racks and is designed for a slow speed, it's pretty intuitive that the, if, even if you don't know anything about bikes, but you see a, a V dot installed bike symbol on a road, you can, you can at least be, aware that there were going to be bikes around right um so it sends a signal really from like a like a psychological way not like a, a communication way that they're expect there to be bikes they're going to be on the road you can install signs to say bikes may use full lane which is uh in the mutcd the but the, the thing about a shero is it's not a bike lane and this is where we start to get a little bit of a disconnect with drivers who don't have as much experience with this kind of thing so a bike lane is a dedicated lane for the preferential use of bike riders only. So a bike rider can use it and a driver can't. And that's why there's um, a solid line separating them. Exactly. And so that, and that, that's a kind of a, a good technical point that uh, it's built within the same standard of the MUTCD, which is if it's a solid line, you can't cross it. And that a white line is typically meant to indicate that it's going in the direction that you're going. And a uh, red, uh, yellow line, it indicates that there's a lane, there's a, uh, a directional difference in, uh, on the other side of that line. So there's intuition there, and there, we we continually kind of um, brush up against this behavioral problem, which is you can't just sign everything. If you put a bunch of signs out, it's, it becomes sign pollution, and people stop paying attention to them. So it's important to use signs where you really need them and then to use other cues to help guide people effectively, like traffic calming that is um, designed, you, you design the speed of a road based on how wide the lanes are or 
how many times you have to stop or if you have to deflect um, things like uh, traffic circles or roundabouts and sidewalk extensions, otherwise called bulb outs. If you put things in the way, you have to drive around, you'll slow down and you can send that that cue and you don't have to explain to anybody, so ex- explain to anybody what that is for, what the purpose is. Um, you, you use it does the, you take use... a little bit of education to explain what bike lanes are. And so we are happy to have put together an RVA bikeways guide with the grant support from the Department of Motor Vehicles, and which I think has been a partner of DriveSmart as well. That actually got us a Governor's Safety or Highway Safety Award back in, I think I want to say 2016. It was in the McAuliffe administration uh, for that guide. And I mean, but that opens the door. Your question opens the door to a much bigger question and conundrum and problem of how do we educate drivers at all? It's tricky. Like, if if folks don't pay attention to a, a lot of things, uh, like it's it's just hard in the media environment to get people to pay attention to very much. Well, um, I think you you had like, a you had a great answer when you said basically the more intuitive it is, the better it works. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, just, that's definitely the design goal. It's hard to get it right or to get it perfect every time, but we definitely that is, that's the attempt. And I mean, it's it can be easy to overlook. Uh, in certain parts of the state that maybe aren't um, as diverse as others, but like when I went to uh, I went to high school in Northern Virginia, in Burke, and it was a, an extremely diverse place, and a lot of people um, were not American citizens. They, you know, they were there for work um, uh, on a work visa, or their families were from abroad, or they were like first generation immigrants from. I mean, like I can't count how many countries they were from. And so to be, it's important to be able to design uh, your roadway system so that it's intuitive to people whose first language is not English mm-hmm. and didn't, you know, they're like, they learn how to drive in another country, but they get here and say, oh, this arrow means this thing. I should probably go that direction. Or this road is kind of constrained. I should probably slow down. Understanding that those kinds of, of road users need to be kept in mind just really solidifies the need for intuition in the way that we design our streets. Coming up in, let's say, April is Distracted Driving Awareness Month. And, of course, we always do a, a big push with that. Uh, we'll be doing social media, and we have a, an online toolkit at our website. We certainly want folks to go visit our website, drivesmartva.org. Go to the online toolkit. You can order print materials, brochures, posters, download downloadable education material, all of that. And it's all free for Virginia residents. Just go there and find out more about uh, Distracted Driving Awareness Month that keeps everyone safer on the road when we're not fiddling with other things in the car, not just the phone, but anything. Brantley, I I know that you you are a very accomplished cyclist. And was it one one or two years ago that did you bicycle across the country or across part of the country? <laughs> I did. I've, I've, I actually raced my bike across the country. I did. Before I go into the story, though, I do want to. I, I like that you brought up your your marketing materials, and we've been a uh, uh, we've considered y'all certainly valued partners, and 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 if anything, we've we've been your partner to help. Yeah, with, you guys uh, are terrific partners. Drive smart, or with the hands free uh, driving bill over the past couple of years, and um, it, it's we've we've really loved taking your lead on that effort. Um, so yeah, I recommend getting those posters, and I've got one up in my office now. It's actually the the buckle up poster, but uh, I need to get one of those distracted driving ones. We'll send um, you one. But yeah, I did. Uh, I I guess I'm I'm mostly retired now. Uh, I, during the pandemic, I 
focused my uh, my extracurricular pursuits into homeownership and woodworking. So um, mostly I make sawdust now instead of <laughs> uh, push my push my feet in circles. But uh, yeah, I did in 2019. I raced my bike across the country in the Trans America bike race, which is a self-supported race, meaning that you can't receive aid. You have to carry everything on your bike or buy it along the way. And lots of sleeping on the ground wow. <laughs> in the middle of the country, which is which is fun. Um, but I did it in large part because I wanted to do something kind of extreme in order to show or, or to draw attention to roadway safety, uh, something that's really important to my to my life. I've lost people and, uh, and friends and family. And my mom was hit by a drunk driver when I was in high school, and she's permanently paralyzed now and li- mm-hmm. lives with me. So it's uh, I wanted to kind of humanize and, and maybe, I don't know, add some kind of excitement and, and weirdness, <laughs> frankly, to a conversation that it can seem a little bit sterile or or otherworldly uh, in a lot of contexts. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, sometimes I'm I'm a little bit loath to uh, to like bring it up because it seems like it's a little, like it's about showmanship, but really it was about just drawing attention to something that otherwise we might kind of take for granted until it's too late. No, I, I mean I, I've said before, traffic safety sounds like kind of a to some people a very boring subject, and until it affects you personally then it makes sense. And the most effective advocates that I've met in the time that I've been associated with Drive Smart Virginia have been people who were directly affected by the what have you that they were advocating for or against because they know they know how important it is. Because we're all road users at some point during the day, normally. Whether we're a pedestrian, bicyclist, passenger, driver, and we all, like I said earlier, have reciprocal responsibilities to one another to ensure each other's safety. And that's that's what we've been talking about. And Brantley, I really appreciate your uh, being a guest on our podcast. You really know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's it's really a pleasure. And and it's uh, I recognize that bike and pedestrian safety is is just one piece of the pie for transportation safety. But I uh, feel passionately about it, and I think that. The more we walk and bike, those of us who are able to do it, the more we get out of our transportation environment that, frankly, we all pay for, right? So we all should uh, we should all expect it to get a little bit better. Thanks for joining us on The Road We Travel, a production of Drive Smart Virginia. Visit our website, drivesmartva.org, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at DriveSmartVA. Join us next time on The Road We Travel.